Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. In a very un-Presbyterian-like fashion, I would like to begin on time, uh, for there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, welcome. I'm so glad you guys are here. The weather is better, much better than last time, and I'm grateful for that. And whether this is your fourth time, whether you're 444 in this class, which I appreciate your perfect attendance, or this is your first time here, uh, I'm glad and delighted that you're a part of this uh, special program in Christian education here at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. Uh, the podcast um, of these lectures is up and running thanks to um, our wonderful communications team. They can be found on our website uh, at uh, www.firstpresatl.org backslash theology matters with an S. So you can find our uh, podcast there. And later in the spring, hopefully in just a couple weeks, we'll be able to roll out a full digital course. I've mentioned this before, but we'll roll out a full digital course of the, the Ten Commandments that will include all of the lectures uh, in video format, also uh, lecture outlines and discussion questions packaged in a way that would be usable in the Sunday school class or small group setting if you wish to, to interact with this material uh, beyond the course of this class. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'll send out an email when that material is available. Um, Special thanks, as always, to our communications team. Um, they do an incredible job of setting up our lights, our cameras, of capturing this course. It's really going to be a wonderful product that we get to enjoy as a result of their work. So I'd like to give them a round of applause for all of their help. And I also want to continue to thank Dottie Hitchcock, who does a lot of the work behind the scenes to make this class work, including the setup of the room, the great dessert from Highland Bakery. She got, you don't know how early she got up this morning to start baking all of that dessert. Uh, the coffee, and so thank you, Dottie, for that. And for those of you who have participated in the coffee roundup, picking up the coffee from Starbucks beforehand, I am grateful uh, for that service as well. <laughs> so speaking of food and coffee, as always, please enjoy food and coffee in the back. We've made adjustments on the dessert to try to match what we've seen is left over. So we've eliminated the things left over from previous weeks and hope, hope that we can match your uh, dessert taste perfectly. <laughs> That's right, well now we, there's usually not much left over, I should add. Um, I have, uh, Dottie's gonna pass around a sign-up sheet. It's really helpful to us just to get a sense of who's here, how many people are here, who's coming back. Um, your name is not going to be added to a spam email list. We're just curious about how this program is developing. So take a moment and sign in there if you would. And also, one other thing to note, at the center of your tables, I've left uh, participant surveys. In any class I teach, whether it's at church or in a seminary, I really appreciate getting feedback uh, for the participants of the class. It helps me uh, assess how well things went, but more importantly, it helps me uh, continue to think and plan and make adjustments to this program moving forward. So you'll see a number of different questions on there, uh, ranging from how much you enjoyed this course to what night of the week is best for Theology Matters, um, all the way to a question about our next Theology Matters course, which we're going to take a, a, about a month and a half break, but in mid-April, we're going to reconvene our third and final Theology Matters course for this academic year. Uh, and I have an idea about what I want to do, but I thought, before solidifying it, I thought I might get your feedback. So I've listed three potential topics on the back of this form, and if you have a preference, uh, please let me know. I'll take that into consideration. Also, if, there, if you want to write in a candidate or an idea 
for a Theology Matters course, be it for this spring or for some other time, I would be really eager to hear your feedback. Uh, we hope to do a lot of these uh, going into the future, so I'm always uh, curious about what you all are interested in and, and where we might go. So just uh, either now or sometime um, when you're bored or during the break, uh, fill out one of those surveys. It's anonymous, so just feel free to leave it on the table and I'll collect it when we're done. All right, so with that being said, let us pray and then we'll begin our last week of this course. God of heaven and God of earth, God of the prophets and the priests, God of Paul and Peter, we pray that this evening as we gather that you might open our ears, our minds, and our hearts, that you would open up your word to us as we think and study and reflect on these ancient texts, these ancient commands that we encounter in the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments. We pray that you would deepen our knowledge of these words you've given us and deepen our thoughts about how these ancient texts might still come alive to us today here in the church. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right. So, session seven, the final six commandments. This session will be looking at commandments five through ten, uh, which consist of one positive commandment about honoring your parents, followed by five prohibitions. Thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, and covet. These commandments are all notably succinct, perhaps unlike some of my lectures. Taken together, they comprise uh, less than one quarter of the whole Decalogue. I think I've mentioned this before, that even if you count up all the space that these last six commandments take up, it's really only one quarter of the Decalogue, which of course means that I am perfectly on time in considering all six of these commandments in our final week. Now, their brevity of form should not lead us to conclude that they are any less important to or integral for this ancient law code. These commandments, in fact, articulate in the clearest form what it means for Israel, and I would add for the church today, to be a morally constituted community. That is to say, these commandments contain a core ethical idea, primarily about how we are to interact with one another as a people of faith. For the sake of time, we'll only look at three of these commandments individually, five, six, and ten, that is, uh, uh, honoring your parents, murder, and coveting. And the other three, six, seven, and, or excuse me, seven, eight, and nine, we're going to reflect on as a unit together. So we'll look at three individually and then three together as a unit. Uh, and then in our second session, the eighth and final session of this course, we'll have some concluding remarks to make uh, about the place of the Ten Commandments in the church today. So without further ado, then, let's turn to the fifth commandment which I'm sure the wording here is very familiar to you, as well as the content, honor your father and mother. A familiar text in many, many ways. But I want to pause a little bit to reflect on a, a few important details. First, did you know that this commandment does not stop here? This is not the entirety of the commandment. Now, this is the commandment that we know. This is the part of the commandment that appears on all of those stone monuments and courthouses and the like. But there is another lengthier part to this, in com this commandment, in fact. And here it is. 
honor your father and mother, comma, so that, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So what's this last phrase doing, and why is it an important part of the commandment? Well, we might think of this last phrase, the beginning with the so that, as, uh, as a motivational cause, a clause. This is the reason or the rationale uh, for why you are to honor your father and mother. It's actually only one of four commandments to have a motivational clause. The other uh, four, three commandments that have a motivational clause is number two, the one about idolatry, number three, the one about using the Lord's name in vain, and number four, the one about the Sabbath. So those four together, two, three, four, and five, all are uh, similar in that they all have a motivation clause. It's, in, it's important to note how this clause functions. Uh, the so that clause here is not, is not a divine blessing. And that might sound weird, but, but let me flesh this out. The message here is not, honor your father and mo mother, and if you do that, God will reward you with long life. That's actually not the logic of this commandment. It rather speaks to a natural and logical consequence, not a divine gift that God gives. A society, in other words, in which parents are honored is a society in which conditions are most suitable to well-being and long life. That is to say, if you take a survey of ten families, the, the families that, where parents are honored, things tend to go better. Now, this is not a hard and fast rule. There, of course, are exceptions to this principle. There are cases where parents are honored and things fall apart. There are cases where parents aren't honored and things still go pretty well. But I think what this motivational clause is trying to sketch out for us is uh, a logical consequence, or a probability, maybe is a better way to say it, that things tend to go well in societies where parents are honored. So that's the first detail to note. The motivation clause, sorry, I'm one click behind, which might be a metaphor for this course. Uh, second thing to note is that both parents, father and mother, are explicitly mentioned in this commandment. And this is, no, this is no small thing in a culture of ancient Israel that was A, dominated by men, and which B, the father was clearly understood to be the head of the household and the supreme authority. So what this commandment is doing in naming both father and mother is actually something fairly countercultural for the time. It's saying that yes, despite the fact that this culture is dominated by men, where men are the chief authority in many, many realms, including the domestic one, both the mother and the father must be honored. And this commandment makes no distinction between the degree to which a mother or a father should be honored. In both cases, the parents should be honored equally. This doesn't necessarily suggest that there was a perfect egalitarian society in ancient Israel. There certainly was not. But as I said, uh, it does a point beyond the system of patriarchy that would have been prominent in ancient Israel to a more egalitarian vision of equality between parents. So that's an important thing to note. The third important thing to note, I think, about the fifth commandment is the audience. If I were to ask you, who is this commandment being given to? If you were to close your eyes and imagine, now I'm one click ahead here because I've given it away, but if you were to close your eyes and imagine the audience, how old would they be? Well, I think the vast majority of people would assume that the audience are kids. And by kids, I mean something like toddlers or uh, pre-adolescent tweens or maybe, and perhaps most of all, teenagers. 
know, the, the sorts of kids who most need to be instructed to honor their parents. And in fact, in this construal, what we typically do, if we think of the kids as the audience, we typically interpret the word honor as obey. That is, you little kids, obey your parents. Obey your parents. So this is possible, but I think it's much better, in fact, in terms of the, the background of this text and its literature, to understand the audience as adult children. That is, fully grown, people like us, adult children. Um, in this sense, well, let me, let me backtrack. With no other commandment do we make the assumption that the audience are kids, right? The, the commandment not to commit adultery and not to kill probably aren't directed at kids, although I would hope kids wouldn't do that, but we don't assume toddlers or tweens or, or high school students necessarily. We, we, we think of adults for those commandments. And so there's no reason to think that somehow the audience has changed, that in every other place the Ten Commandments address adults, and here they address kids. I think here also the audience uh, are adult children. In this sense, honor has to do with providing and caring for aging parents. In the historical context of the Decalogue, that's what this commandment is concerned about. Not little kids being obedient to parents, but rather adult kids caring for and providing for elderly parents. And I think, in fact, that's the reason why honoring one's parents gives you long life in the land. That literally, when elderly parents are honored by their adult kids, that actually contributes to longer life. Not always, of course. But generally, it sets things up in a good direction. Um, I think this is an important point for the church because I think, in fact, that we, don't, we, we still implicitly assume this is a commandment about kids, and we often fail to have conversations about what it is, to, what it means for, for adult children to care for parents in their elder, older age. I don't know that there are easy answers to that question. In fact, I know that there aren't. But I think it's an important conversation for the church to engage in. How do we care for uh, parents who are aging? Finally, I want to note one other last thing with the, with the fifth commandment, and then I'll pause for a question or two, is what happens to this commandment in the New Testament? It's cited a couple times, and both or the, the few times that it's cited, I think maybe three or four times, they always deal with two potential problems or conflicts with this commandment. Two potential conflicts come up in the New Testament, and that's why this commandment gets talked about. The first potential problem is this. What about abusive parents? Should kids, or even adults, honor parents who really don't deserve much honor and respect? Should, are there limits to this commandment? Is it absolute that kids should always honor their parents whatever the age and whatever the parents are like. The New Testament seems to be sensitive to this issue, and the way it does so is by emphasizing a certain reciprocity of the commandment. A good example is, is articulated in Colossians 3. It says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty to the Lord. But then it goes on. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. The idea here is that there is a way for parents to act that is deserving of honor. This puts a hedge around the commandment in some sense and says, look, it's not just about kids uh, honoring parents. It's about how parents should treat kids. That sort of implicit reciprocity of the commandment is something the New Testament often does 
in commenting on the various aspects of the Decalogue. Second, an, a second potential conflict is what about times when honoring one's earthly parents would come into conflict with honoring God? What do you do then? What if your parents are directing you away from God, prohibiting you from going to temple or to church? Should one honor one's parents then above or before honoring God? Well, in these cases, the New Testament talks about uh, the first commandment, that is the commandment to have no other God uh, before Yahweh, takes precedent over the fifth. So the fifth commandment becomes relativized. It's important, but it's not as important as the first commandment. And there's a couple good examples of this. Um, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, in a description of discipleship, uh, uh, Luke says, who, or this is Jesus speaking, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Right? This is a radical statement. But Luke is saying, don't let the commandment, this is one of the things he's saying, don't let the commandment about honoring parents be an obstacle to true Christian discipleship. Now, I should add that this is not the normal ways things work. In, in the book of Acts, for instance, the assumption is that whole families join the church. There's not an assumption that one has to break from one's family in order to be a follower of Christ. But here, Luke see, or Jesus seems to be sensitive to the fact that sometimes there might be a conflict between obedience to God, one's heavenly father, and obedience to one's earthly parents. A second example, and this is a, I, I grow more interested in, interested in this one as, as I uh, grow as a parent, but there's this story in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke when Jesus is 12, perhaps you remember this, and his family goes to Jerusalem for Passover. And unbeknownst to Joseph and Mary, uh, Jesus kind of gets lost in the crowd and stays behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and Mary and the rest of the crowd are walking back, and only a day later do they realize Jesus is not with us. If you're a parent, consider how terrifying that moment is when you look around and don't see your kid at a grocery store or at a department store. That's the feeling I think Mary and Joseph had. And so they go back to Jerusalem, and for three days, Joseph and Mary search for Jesus and cannot find him. On the third day, I, one can only assume they're about to give up hope. On the third day, they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers who are reading Torah. And in verse 48, Mary says, and you can just, I, I can hear the frustration in Mary's voice when she says, Child, why have you treated us like this? I think surely she means, why have you dishonored us? Why have you done this to us by staying beside? And Jesus' response is interesting. He says in verse 49, this is of chapter 2, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? What is Jesus saying? I think his response is, I was honoring the fifth commandment. It's just that I was honoring my heavenly father, not my earthly father. He's kind of embodying and reflecting this priority of commandment one over commandment five. Now, what's interesting about how this story concludes, because I think the gospel writer Luke here might have been anxious that this would have come across as Jesus kind of being a little bit of a rebellious uh, preteen and kind of not following his commandments. So in the very last verse of this story, it says that thereafter, Jesus and Mary and Joseph returned to Nazareth 
and Jesus was obedient to his parents. And in that case, he means Joseph and Mary. So I think Luke was trying to be careful here to make sure that we didn't get the wrong idea, that this was only a case of Jesus honoring the Heavenly Father over the earthly parent, and that it didn't really lead to, to the kind of the rebellious years of Jesus' life, uh, but rather it was just a moment in time when one priority took place over the other. So an interesting story, I think. And I think at its core, it's a story about obedience to the fifth commandment. Let me pause real quickly. There's more to say, of course, about this commandment, but any questions or thoughts as a follow-up? Yeah, Dale. Uh, in the Deuteronomy, it mentions the fifth Yes. It says, uh, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God Yes, you. yes. That's right. It's a fantastic question. The, the, the difference between the Exodus and the Deuteronomy version is, that in, is, the, is this. In Exodus, it presents the giving of the Ten Commandments as if the Lord was speaking directly to the people. Moses has very little to do with, the Deuteron- with uh, the kind of the relaying of the Ten Commandments. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has a bigger role to play. In fact, Moses is kind of reflecting back in the third person on the commandments that the Lord gave to the people. And so at a few points in the Decalogue, in the Deuteronomy version, you have these little editorial asides where Moses kind of interjects, as the Lord commanded you. But it's from the perspective of of Moses kind of reminiscing about that time uh, back yonder when the Lord gave you these commands. But there's not another place that he's referring to. He means that that commandment. Yeah. Susan. In the Luke 14, it's real strong. Um, yeah. What, how does, uh, in the Greek, I guess it was, or in the Hebrew, or the other translations, hmm. that's a pretty strong section. It is. I, you know, I have to say off the top of my head, I, I don't recall what the Greek is here. Um, but my suspicion is that, that the New Test- that the NRSV has captured the intensity of this. I mean, Jesus here is saying something radical, and it's not supposed to be normative for all occasions. That is, one doesn't always need to hate one's parents. Uh, to be a follower of Christ. But when push comes to shove and when in conflict, Luke and and Jesus here are trying to relativize the importance of priorities, to set one over against the other. But it's it's a hard text to swallow. And I think we need to keep this text in conversation with the Decalogue so as to to make sure that the the hating of the parents in following Jesus doesn't actually get abused or taken out of context or or expanded beyond. Uh, But there's no easy resolution to it, I would say. Yes. Which the Lord has given you. And that, do you think that relates back to uh, Moses saying, I'm, where he was told, I'm going to give you this earth? Moses telling the people, obey God, and you will have the land. Yeah. If you don't, yeah. the land isn't going to be there for you. Yeah. And so that if you, uh, if you basically saying, if you honor your parents, then you will follow, you will be following what Moses uh, told you. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's part of it. Uh, Bill, I think there's an, an, there's an implicit analogy here, too, that uh, this commandment is about respect. It is about following those kind of set authority over above you. So I think the thought process is, if you, if you disobey your parents, it might be all the more likely that you disobey the Lord. That is, that you're the sort of person who doesn't 
take direction. You're the sort of person who doesn't take wisdom. You're the sort of person who doesn't ha have a respect for authority. So in that sense, the parents are the closest analog to God in terms of authority figures in the life of the person. So in that sense, yes, disobeying parents, if that leads to disobeying God, then certainly the, the, the witness of Scripture is your, your, your days are going to be short in the land because you're going to be exiled. Not because you'll die, but because you'll be taken out of the land that God has given you. At least that's the idea in the Old Testament. Let me take one more back here, and then we'll move on for sake of time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes, that's right. You said he didn't have a great deal of respect. You said he did have a great deal of respect. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I, I think it's a beautiful observation. If you go back and read the first two chapters of Exodus, the whole story about the liberation of the Israelites begins with five acts of deliverance by five women. The women start the story of Exodus, and they are the key to what kind of sets off a trajectory towards liberation. So I think in that sense, uh, uh, we might say Moses was always surrounded by powerful, decisive women whose actions made a real difference in bringing forward God's plans for his people. So I, I think it's a great observation and, and, and well, well stated. Let me, the more to say here, let me move on to commandment six, uh, just for sake of time. Uh, once again, I think the commandment is rather straightforward and probably well known to you, thou shalt not murder except that there's a very tricky question about, in fact, how to translate this verse. Is the commandment, thou shalt not kill, as we find in the KJV, the ASV, the RSV, the CEB, and the NIV, or, in fact, is this a commandment, thou shalt not murder, which we find in the ESV, the NRSV, the NCV, and the NASB? What, in fact, is it, and what's the difference what does the concept of murder entail, at least the English concept of murder, what does that entail that, that killing does not? Unjustified, Unjustified yes. Intent. Intent, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, typically we, we understand murder as carrying two implications, two implications. It's unlawful and it's premeditated. So it's illegal but it's also intentional. So, for instance, manslaughter, let's say you were driving a car and somehow, God forbid, uh, you know, a bike dashed out in front of your car and you tried the best you could to, to swerve, but you hit the, this is horrible, you hit the bike, the biker, and he died. That would be manslaughter, not murder, because it's unlawful, but on the other hand, it's not premeditated. There was no intent to kill. So there'd be a consequence, but a very different consequence than murder. On the flip side, war is clearly premeditated, but in a lot of cases, and this could be debatable, but in a lot of cases is deemed to be lawful. So manslaughter, it's unlawful but not premeditated. In the case of war, it's premeditated but deemed to be lawful. Both things, by and large, don't constitute murder, in, at least in the U.S. justice system. 
So murder, then, is a narrower category. It's a smaller category. Killing could include a wider array of subjects. Again, it could be manslaughter um, and, and many, many other things uh, that don't fit the narrow definition of murder. So the question is, well, what is it in the Old Testament? What does this word mean in the Old Testament? How is it used? Well, the Hebrew word, because you know I like to talk about Hebrew, is ratzak, ratzak. So we might look in other passages in the Old Testament and say, okay, well, how is Ratzak used? Is it used in reference to unlawful, premeditated murder? Or is Ratzak used more broadly to talk about any form, uh, any activity that results in the taking of life of someone else, whether premeditated or not? Well, an important point, a text to turn to, is Numbers 35, your favorite book of the Bible, book of Numbers. Uh, I, we turn to Numbers 35 because this is where the term is most densely concentrated. About a quarter of the occurrences of the word ratzak in Hebrew occur in Numbers 35. So it's a pretty good place to look if you want to think about how the biblical authors thought about um, what, what this thing was, killing or murder. The broader context about Numbers 35 is it's a conversation, it's an odd conversation, but it's a conversation about building cities of refuge for those who have taken someone's life and is essentially awaiting trial. They needed, there needed to be a safe place for someone who took someone else's life so that before their trial came so that someone couldn't come and exact like a, a revenge killing on, on that person and their family. So they provided these cities where people could go for, for, for safety for a while. So it's a longer text, but we're going to look at two particular aspects of it. Um, the first is in uh, verses 20 to 21. It's lengthy, but I'll read it. Likewise, if someone pushes another from hatred or hurls something at another, lying in wait and death ensues, or in enmity strikes another with a hand and death ensues, then the one who struck the blow shall be put to death. What does this sound like to you so far? Is this premeditated or non-premeditated? Premeditated, right? You do this out of angry, out of anger, out of enmity. You lie in wait. There seems like to be a secretive aspect to it. This seems to be to be clearly to be murder. And in fact, that's exactly how the NRSV translate. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer, here in Hebrew, a word derived from the word we have in the, fifth, uh, the sixth commandment, ratzak, Okay, so it's the same word in Hebrew as we have in the Decalogue, is used here in description of premeditated, unlawful murder. And so I think very rightly the, new, the NRSV translates murderer. Okay, that seems like that seals the deal. The Decalogue is against murder. Yeah, Brian. Uh, it's, it's a good question. Um, I'm, I'm going to circle back to that because uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very revealing for this, this point. So hang on to that just one second. That's such a great audience, such a great class. Let's keep reading. 22 to 25. But if someone pushes another suddenly without enmity, or hurls any object without lying in wait, or while handling any stone that could cause death, unintentionally drops it on another, and death ensues. I'm not sure what that context is, but let's just say it happens. Though they were not enemies, and no harm was intended, then the congregation shall judge. Now, what sort of activity is this? Is this murder? It's without enmity. It's without hatred. It's unintentional. This clearly sounds different to me than what we just read, right? 
And so, very sensically, the, the NRSV translates this person as a slayer. The slayer and the avenger of blood, in, accordance with these accor uh, in accord with these ordinances, and the congregation shall rescue the slayer from the avenger of blood. So the idea here is that this person is different, right? They're not a murderer, there's a slayer, right? So this seems to be the case that the, that the way that the, uh, that the Old Testament thinks about it, there are these different categories. The first category where the, the killing is, is premeditated, that's called a murderer. And in this case, where it's unpremeditated, it's a slayer. Follow me? Here's the problem. The word is exactly the same in Hebrew as the word for murder. It's the NRSV who decides to interpret very differently for us. So what's the point of this? Well, I think it's clear in the Old Testament, when you look at the Hebrew, the word articulated in the sixth commandment, thou shalt not ratzak, includes murder, but also other acts which result in the taking of life. So because of this, I actually think killing is a far better translation. Now, Brian, back to your point. If we go here, and, and it actually occurs later in verse 27, even the justified and lawful act of putting the murderer to death, that is essentially capital punishment, guess what that's called? Ratzak. Right? So according to the Old Testament, it's all Ratzak. It's all prohibited. There's this broader category. It's not narrowed down to murder. There's a concern in the Decalogue, particularly in the Sixth Commandment, for the preservation and protection of all life. Now, to be fair, the consequences differ, right? So it's not that the Old Testament makes no difference between the two. The consequence is different. A premeditated act of killing, it, there's a different punishment for that than an unpremeditated act of killing. So ethically, in terms of the judicial system, the Old Testament makes a difference. But in terms of what the Decalogue is talking about, it means all of it. It's an expansive category. And in fact, I think the New Testament follows this same direction. Um, we'll look at a couple of different examples, but particularly Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Think about what Jesus does here. He's not narrowing the commandment down to some particular idea. He's exploding it and saying even the feelings that could, might, could lead to murder, even they are prohibited. So Jesus is expanding the commandment out to include even more things than just killing. A similar move uh, is made in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, in the 107th question in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, says this, Is it enough, then, if we do not kill our neighbor in any of these ways? It just has listed a bunch of different ways you might kill someone. No, it's not enough to do that. For when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he requires us, to, requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to prevent injury to him as much as we can, and also to do good to our enemies. The Heidelberg Catechism inverts the commandment. It takes a prohibition and makes it into a positive ethical impulse to at all costs to love and protect life. 
That, I think, is the trajectory. Now, the, old te- the Decalogue doesn't say all of that, but I think because of its choice of the word for murder or, or, uh, or killing, it opens up a trajectory for this commandment to expand out, not to be limited, but to include a wide variety of things that might cause harm to other individuals. I think that's the sort of thing this commandment uh, has in focus. And I think it's, again, it's important for the church to consider this, because I think this is one of those commandments where we say, phew, at least I didn't commit that one. Maybe I struggle with the other nine, but I got number six under control. Well, yes, and I'm glad and grateful that that's the case. Uh, but I think if we really get at the intent of the commandment and work it out through its development into the New Testament, we realize actually we're probably on the hook for this one too. If we understand it as this ardent commitment to love the enemy, to protect life at all cost, and even to avoid anger. In that case, this commandment is probably as relevant to each of us as any other commandment is. Let me pause here again, uh, just briefly for one or two questions, if there are any. Walter? Yeah, the, the, it's a great question. There, uh, the ethical, uh, how may I put this? The way the Israelites act and what's recorded in Scripture does not always, and sometimes not often, seem to be in accord with these commandments. We have parts, particularly of the Old Testament, but also parts of the New, where violence not only seems to be not judged, but almost seems to be valorized or glorified, and occasionally even sanctified, that is considered to somehow be an expression of one's devotion to the Lord. I think what's important to note is to not kind of pretend that those texts aren't there, but to put those texts in conversation with the clear ethical orientation of the Decalogue in all the places where that idea is worked out and expanded, such that we actually can have a critical response back to the wiping out of the Canaanites, if it ever did happen. Uh, we would have something biblically to say about the problem of violence we have in the Old Testament. So we need to acknowledge that it's there, but uh, the descriptions of the Israelite violence are, weren't intended to be prescriptive for us. That is, just because the Israelites did it doesn't mean that we then, too, should do it. And that's why we have the Decalogue, is to remind us of that. All right, let's, uh, I'm moving quickly so we can get to the next Three commandments, which, again, we're going to deal with as a unit. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. uh, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I should say, as an editorial aside, at the last minute as I was editing these slides, I realized that in the first version, I had accidentally omitted the word not here. (laughs) And uh, that would have been uh, a very different message. (laughs) Uh, So a couple things about these three commandments, uh, seven through nine. Uh, They tend to be grouped together, actually, in other parts of the Bible. We tend to find these three commandments always going along with one another. Anytime one is mentioned, the other three are mentioned. Um, But what's curious is that there are uh, at least five different orders for this and the next three commandments in the Bible. 
That is, there's not some set order. We know a set order from Exodus and Deuteronomy, but the order of these three commandments, along with murder, sometimes get juggled around. Now, typically, uh, murder or adultery comes at the top of the list, and then other things follow, but not always. Check out these interesting examples. Um, Run from the book of Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel, for the Lord has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or loyalty, and no knowledge of God in the land. Now listen to its list. Swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery break out. Are these in the right order? Not exactly, right? Murder is five, adultery is six, Stealing is seven, lying is eight. Maybe bearing false, uh, or, um, did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, so, so, the, so this is uh, nine, six, eight, seven is their order here. So not exactly an orthodox order. Uh, look also at Jeremiah 7, 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known. Here again, the order is a little bit awkward. Steal is eight. I think I said seven before. I apologize. Steal is eight. Murder is six. Commit adultery is seven. And then swear falsely is nine. So what do we make of these different orders? Well, on one hand, maybe Hosea and Jeremiah weren't trying to put the commandments in order. Maybe they were just listing things that they saw were problematic among the people. That's probably the most logical and easy answer. Maybe it suggests that the order of these commandments was not yet set by this time, that maybe the order came later. Um, The order that we know of it wasn't always original. Or maybe it suggests um, some interplay between these commandments. For instance, the idea of stealing in the Old Testament is not just about, you know, kind of like armed robbery or stealing bread from the local store. It's often used in reference to stealing someone's life as an abduction. So maybe stealing here is at the front because really it's related to murder, right? It's something more serious. We don't really know. It's just speculation, but it's curious to know that that A, these commandments come together, and B, they come in different orders. And no matter how they are ordered, it seems to me that each of these commandments has to do with the well-being of the neighbor, that these are very outward-focused commandments. This is about how you treat others. Their collective goal is to form a communal ethic that nurtures, respects, and establishes well-being and justice in human society. I call these the State Farm Commandments, uh, in that they describe the acts of the good neighbor. This is what a good neighbor is like. We all want to live next to a good neighbor, and so we're invited to be the good neighbor to others. How do we do that? Well, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, This is an obvious point, perhaps, but an important one. I think it's particularly important because sometimes in Christianity we see the commandments and the law as just being about individual foibles or personal failures. But here in the Decalogue, we actually realize that this is sketching out for us a particular communal ethic. This is about how to live together as God's people, not just how to be pious in your own walk with Jesus, but this is about how to be ethically responsible and a morally constituted community. All of this is about the neighbor. For instance, consider the frame of reference of the adultery commandment. For good reason, we typically think about committing, well, we don't think about committing adultery, I hope, but we typically think about 
adultery in terms of it's something you do to your spouse, right? So one commits adultery against one's spouse. But in the Old Testament, that's not how it is. One commits adultery against your neighbor's marriage, right? Now, of course, adultery can be a horrendously difficult thing for any individual marriage, and on occasion it can lead to the the dissolution of that marriage. But in the Old Testament idea is, it's a violation against your neighbor. It's doing something to your neighbor and your neighbor's spouse. And only secondarily, is it, and as a result, is it something you do against your spouse? So even in that sense, this commandment is not about your household, it's about your neighbor's household, more so than anything. Or consider the commandment about not stealing. Again, we typically think, uh, think of stealing in terms of armed robbery, robbery, forcibly taking something that doesn't belong to you. But in the Old Testament, this commandment expands to include a positive responsibility to look after your neighbor's property. So it's not enough just not to steal. You violate this commandment when you don't look after your neighbor's property in the Old Testament. For instance, not forgiving a loan in the Sabbath year is called stealing in Deuteronomy 23. Not releasing your debt servants in the Sabbath year is considered stealing in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, In Leviticus, reaping... uh, your harvest to the very edge of your field, leaving nothing left for the poor and the orphan to pick up, kind of leaving no scraps in your field, it's considered stealing. Now, it's your property. It's your crop. You have every right to harvest every last bit of it. And yet, what the, the Old Testament does with this commandment is to say to not leave something for the poor is actually to break this commandment. So here again, it's about the neighbor and it's a broader category than we typically think. Um, Or we could consider bearing false witness. This also was more than just lying or telling a fib. The context here, well actually I should say that that, uh, bearing false witness is described in other places in the Old Testament as a malicious act, or it describes it in terms of violence. The word in Hebrew for violence, Hamas. And you know the word Hamas from other realms, particularly the realm of anti-Israeli terrorist organization. Same word in the Hebrew Bible. Why is it violence to bear false witness? Because in an ancient judicial systems, before uh, blood tests and DNA and forensic analysis, the only way you decided if someone was guilty of a crime and perhaps deserving of death was someone else's witness. And so a false, bearing false witness was literally a matter of life and death in the ancient world. In fact, it's why Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21 specifies that any crime punishable by death requires two or more witnesses. It's a way to kind of hedge against how a false witness could lead to an unjust killing of someone. So in all these cases, the stakes are high and the ethic is always oriented towards the well-being of the community. So it's serious stuff. I believe, I think I want to pause here uh, to end our seventh session. We're going to take a quick break, about five minutes, and when we come back, I just want to have a brief word to say about the Tenth Commandment, and then I want to say some concluding remarks about the place of the Decalogue in the church today. So let's reconvene in five.